Hi there, my name is Corey Johnston. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating pediatric occupational therapists. A joint collaboration between SEED Pediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. We're not intending to be a substitute for professional medical advice or therapeutic intervention. We urge you to seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding specific medical conditions. With that, let's jump in to today's episode. Hello. Hi, Corey. Hi, Trace. Hello. <laughs> hey guys, great to be with you again. Yes. Yeah, awesome. Welcome everybody joining Corey in my mentoring session with Tracy. Uh, we hope you're enjoying as we are uh, listening to us as we meander in and out pediatric OT theory and practice where we really um, are on a journey to learn as much as we can about yep. this huge, really broad <laughs> subject. Um, so we are just trying to wrap our heads around it with what we already know and the new bits and really integrate it um, as much as we can. Yeah. So we are, uh, it's a meandering journey. What yeah. you're listening to us is uh, not a lecture. There's lots of places and we're giving you lots of resources where you can go and listen to that. Um, or, or attend lectures. This is us having been on a uh, reading textbooks and been on lectures, and now we're trying to integrate it into our own thinking. Yep. Uh, so you're seeing the gritty behind the scenes work. You're here <laughs> listening to us. We apologize, it's not neat and <laughs> tidy, but that's how things go. Yeah. So, Corey. Episode four. I know. What are we revisiting today? Well, um, we were talking about posture. So, and then that led us to praxis um, and a backbeat, I feel, to all of these topics was sensory discrimination. Um, And so we like alluded it to it a few times um, and it kind of came up a few times. And so we all thought, well, we better start talking about this um, so that you guys can understand, like we're trying to understand, how this underpins the the subjects that we're actually talking about and the function that we're seeing um, in front of us. So I guess if you – oh, man, sensory discrimination. It's so big. But if you want really detailed um, information about the structure and the functions of each of the senses – um, how that process comes together, just pure like neurologically, there's lots of places you can go. Um, I don't know, Tracy has told us about principles of neural science, which is, I don't know, how thick do you think, 15 centimetres thick? Mm. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful textbook. It's, the door it's stop. huge. Sure. Um, so you can go that, that deep. Um, and some of the other textbooks that we've mentioned in the other podcasts, like sensory integration theory and practice might give you more of a, like an overview, or if you just want to like dip your toes in the water, even just, um, sensory integration in the child, like the parent based one, mm. um, can be a good way just to sort of like get a sense of this concept of how each of the senses takes, I guess, information from the environment and translates that into electrical signals to the brain. So, um, that that we won't specifically dive into that process today um just because we want to get to some real juicy meaty bits but i i mean i i feel like i struggled when i first graduated and i first started learning about these concepts knowing the difference between sensory modulation and sensory discrimination and we haven't talked about sensory modulation yet but we definitely will but this might i'm hoping i'm really hoping that this might help some people listening start to figure out the differences and that journey because it does take time to know the differences between these concepts. And so um, hopefully this this episode will help everyone start to do that and pull that together. So, but, I mean, how do you pull put sensory discrimination together, Michelle? Like how, what do you think of when you think of sensory discrimination? I think about it as the detail. It's the noticing of a particular input so whether it's sight, um, hearing, a touch, and it's knowing the exact features of that. So the location of it and um, the detail of it. Yeah. So that um, 
so for touch, for example, I can discern whether it's light or hard and I know what body part it is. So it's really the fine tuning of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I always went to start to go, uh, I don't know, when I'm trying to explain it to a parent, I'm, I'm, I'm even going to the point of like, it's not just me registering, registering that I got touched somewhere on my body. It's my nervous system actually knowing what was that? Was that something sticky? Was it something rough? Was it hard? Was it um, sharp? Like all the qualities of the input yes. and actually figuring out what it what it actually is. But Tracy, you, I'm sure, can help us refine this even more than what we've got it now. So, I mean, like, what do you think in terms of, are we on the right track? <laughs> so you guys are spot on around sensory discrimination. It's the precise detail that's processed. But here's the OT question, you guys. Sensory processing for the purpose of what? Why mm. does our brain need detail? Mm. And our brain needs detail so that it can organize our system for skillfulness. So if you pick up detail in the any sensory system, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about some, some examples um, that'll kind of bring that to life. But, you know, the, the one that comes to mind and is the most typically used to describe this is related to the touch system. Yeah. And so if you have some coins in your pocket and you're trying to find the coin that fits into the parking meter, I guess we don't do that anymore because we use credit cards or Venmo <laughs> or something. But in the old days, we used coins and put them in the parking meter. So you had to reach in your pocket and get that just right coin. And you can tell the difference by feeling the quality of the size or the edge. Maybe one has more of a rough edge and one is smooth. Or maybe one has a hole in it and you can feel that. Or maybe you can feel the weight so all of that discernment of quality of touch or weight um, is processed to tell you information. And that information goes from your touch receptors in your fingers in this instance into your um, higher level cortices. And it tells you information that is visual, that's maybe even linked to language or cognition or memory because you know the coin because you learned it. Mm. And so the, the connection there is that your smarter, higher level brain is able to turn that into what we call representational information. Mm. And that representational information then helps you connect to praxis so that you say, oh, I don't want that coin, put that one aside, I want that one. And it helps you isolate and pull the one you want right to your fingertips. And so the motor plan of get the coin that I want into my fingertips to put into the little slot is connected back to the sensory detail. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. that just gave me like a moment of, oh, wow, that, I mean, I knew that, how the tactile system is related to language, but like the, I guess that was just so clearly just re like defined for me just then. It just like clearly popped in my, into my head around, okay, so obviously when you feel this certain coin, you've got this language attached to this feeling and this perception of like, I, I was even thinking like a, a fruit, you know, if I picture the word fruit in my mind, not fruit, orange, if I picture the word orange in my mind, then I get this, um, I can f exactly in my hand, I can feel the rough texture of the skin and how you could, how hard it is to like peel it or when you get in the inside, it's kind of squishy, like mm. how, how closely they're linked. Well, I did the opposite. So when Tracy was describing the coins, they were popping up. I saw a 50 cent, a yeah. dollar. So I had to have a visual image that was prompted by um, the, the touch detail i yeah. guess i thought about the 50 cent piece too yeah <laughs> it's got that it's ours yeah is like, that's it right. yeah so when you combine somatosensory tactile input in particular with visual information the neurological word we call that is haptic processing mm -hmm. right. so haptic detail 
guides so much of our skill all day long. And it allows you to become really efficient and automatic and you don't have to think really hard about things. Like think about how you zip your coat. You don't even really have to look at it because you can feel it and you know when the zipper's engaged or when it's not engaged. And you know what, how to bilaterally shift your hands from the holding to the finessing to the zipping parts, right? Mm. So all those little skillful things, those daily living skills that as occupational therapists, we're really interested in those. But when we're working with children that have problems with coordination, very often what happens is their ability to pick up on that detail and operate on that detail is really weak. And it can be weak for lots of different reasons. But Dr. Ayers made this very clear link between sensory discrimination and the functions of skillfulness mm. that really live in this big umbrella that we call praxis. But skillfulness is sometimes automatic. Sometimes it's really practiced. Sometimes it's so effortful. Like you have to work really hard to develop that level of skillfulness. If you're trying to learn how to play the guitar, mm. right? How can you ever play the guitar if you can't feel how your fingers have to go to each of those frets and each of those those um, chord shapes, strings, and yeah. for the chord changes, and how do you configure your hand? And that takes a precise detail awareness in your hand, but then it take and then that guides the motor control, and then you add the finesse of the rhythm and the musicality, mm. and the all integrates together. But it's all sitting back on this base of sensory discrimination. So without that, like really accurate feedback around how much pressure, I'm even just thinking of like the clearest example in the guitar. If I don't push, if I can't even figure out how hard I need to push, I won't be able to get a clear sound from the string in terms of it changing its um, pitch. So like if I don't have the discrimination around how hard to push, like if I can't tell if I'm pushing hard or soft, then I can't change the plan to make it work. Like I'll mm. just get a funky chord sound or I'll like as in I'll get lots of reverb from the string because it's just not actually pushed down against the fret. Is that That's right. And the mm. same would happen with a zipper, right? You can't get the zipper to zip if you don't get the right amount of pressure. Yeah. And if you don't get the right amount of pinch and the right amount of force and the timing. So all of those praxis functions are dependent on this sensory discrimination. So I was thinking about, so in terms of the pressure, so if I'm putting, excuse me, if I'm putting the zip into the like zipper catch at the bottom and I don't have the right um, pressure, I was just thinking about the sensations that like I might need, I need for that job. I'm thinking about proprioception and tactile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then and then really also if you don't have um, integration at the deepest level of somatosensation, tactile proprioception, and vestibular, then when you go to zip, you will fall down because you can't maintain your core stability mm-hmm. while you're moving your extremities with a lot of detail and precision and carefulness, and so. Dr. Ayers just got it right in terms of integration, right? Mm. And we've said this every episode, I think. Mm. So maybe it's just like, you know, a tattoo I should get on my arm and stop <laughs> saying it over and over again. But um, yeah, it's really, it's really beautiful. And it's a precise system. You know, we see it in as little kids start to develop, they start to play around with the feeling, the tactile discrimination and the grading, the timing. So they try, they play around with pushing something hard and pushing something soft and then pushing it just right. Mm -hmm. And then they get that nuance between the too hard, the too soft and the just right. Um, And, you know, so much of our, I don't know, just the way we enrich our experience and our skill is through playing around with that, playing Mm -hmm. around with the feeling of it. Yeah. Wow. The thing that I just got, which I haven't really thought about before, I've thought about 
the, each of the senses being able to be um, precise in discerning or identifying the qualities. But how you would just explain that then, Tracy, the background is an orchestra that I, that Corey, for example, with the guitar, yes, she's going to feel whether she's got the pressure right. But at the start, she will, should hear that she's got the pressure on the tone. I'm not a musician, so I don't know what pitch tone, whatever. The sound won't be right, which will cue her in Change oh, what you're doing. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, your pressure's not quite right. Yeah. So that while um, it's tactile input, it's on the orchestra for the rest of the senses to help add precision to that one uh, system. That's exactly right. Yeah. That and and so the sensory discrimination system it works both um, through precise mapping yes. of the detail. But then it works through integration of the polysensory systems coming together and auditory and visual helping you. So when you're putting your finger on the fret and on the cord and you know from the sound and the look and the feel, sound, look and feel all together that help you to know, did I get it right or not? Mm -hmm. And if you got it wrong, error gives a signal that needs to be corrected Mm -hmm. and you correct the detail. You, and that's exactly the refinement that happens that leads to higher level skillfulness. So sensory motor embodied through practice is what leads to skill. Yeah. So in that process of like error detection, adjustment, try again, correct, like, oh, got it right. It, that is that the neural plasticity, like that's the pathways forming around that new skill. Like that's where it's refining around it. Yeah, that's exactly cool. right. That's exactly right. And vice versa, that if I don't have precision in enough senses, then I won't get that. If my auditory system uh, isn't able to discriminate, oh, that pitch was a smidge off, and my tactile system isn't saying, oh, you're not quite right on, then I won't correct. I won't pick up the mm. detail of you haven't got that quite right. So I'll keep repeating in error that activity or that task. And I'm thinking about, because you talked about typical development, Tracy, and I'm just thinking like we don't come wired, like ready to be skilled, like we're ready to be skillful, but we're not yet skillful, right? So I'm just trying to think, well, then how do we discern, like is it when somebody's not detecting the error and not adjusting that we go, huh, like that's not typical. I'm trying to think what, how do you discern then what typical is typical learning from, uh, that's not coming together like as it should typically. Um, and how do then we support that to come together? That's what my brain goes to. Yeah. I think we see it. And I think, you know, I think you've talked about it in posture, Corey, you were spot on with your posture in terms of talking about the quality of it and that you, we often hear parents say, oh yeah, hit that, you know, they hit the milestones. Yes, they did all of that, but they're presenting, um, with not enough quality of skill at four. Quality. Yeah. And, and you're, you're awesome at this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kind of, I was just in my head trying to think like how, if you have a really little child, like, you're going, you know, is it more in the error detection? Will they not detect the errors? Then you start to become concerned. Like, it, I guess it just wouldn't improve or wouldn't progress or it's, it, I guess it would look clunky. Yeah, and, that's the yeah, lagging. That's yeah. lagging. I don't know, Tracy, what do you think? That's exactly right. So here's the thing. When a child produces an error, anybody, a lay observer, a parent uh, is somebody may notice that it looks a little bit off. The difference that studying this theory and working on our clinical reasoning um, provides for us is exactly being able to attune our eyes to where in that process is the error, is is the clunkiness, is the difficulty, the struggle, the lack of ease and smoothness and automaticity. Where is all of that coming from? And so that's really part of your journey, um, you know, as a clinician and using these approaches, you're, you're observing, where do you see the detail is missing? Is it at the level of error? Does the kid get to the point of, let's say that they're 
trying to put, um, you know, uh, a thread into a needle or they're trying to kick a ball into a goal. So those are the same skill, right? It's a precise skill. There's just one is on a fine, very fine motor level and one is on a gross motor level, but it's the same skill. Take this thing and put it into that thing. So as children are working on that precision, if the issue is more around, I don't really understand what part of my finger I would hold it with. And so I'm just using the more, you know, primitive parts of my hand to try to hold on to the little thread. Then if you give them something bigger that they can feel better, they're probably going to learn the process of the feeling for the doing faster than just continuing to be frustrated Mm -hmm. by what's going on. So OTs are really good at that kind of grading the shape and size and feel of things. And, and what we're talking about is why we do that. Why do we do that kind of task analysis? Why do we offer a bigger thread versus a skinnier thread? And we're doing it to, to give the fuel, the sensory discrimination detail, and force that as the agent of precision and the agent of skillfulness. That, oh, that sounds amazing. Like that has been really helpful for me, Tracy, just that juicy bit of information you just gave us. But I, I thought about if you start to grade the size of the bead for the kid that can't get the smaller bead and the finer thread and they still can't figure out how that this piece of string goes into that bead and how do I push it through and pull it out, um, how do we figure out where the, I guess, the problem lies in that? example. So this kind of takes us to the kind of coolest thing, you guys, that is not easy to access in the literature. So guess what? We're going to be like secret information givers here. (laughs) It's available in the science literature and it is in our OT literature, but it's not easy to pull all this together. So here we go. Mm. Sensory discrimination is the foundation of praxis. Dr. Ayers wrote that We've talked about it for decades, but the, the link between those two is how sensory discrimination leads to perception. And perception is coupled with action to give us praxis. Perception and action together are a dynamic system that are produced by the affordances of the body interacting with the environment and the things out in the world. So let's think about like a round object. If a human being comes up to a round object, um, they know that that cylinder, the roundness, the shape of it, the affordance of roundness is something that can move across space if you give it a little bit of energy. So if you take your hand and you push it onto a round object, that round object will roll. So if you have the capacity to put your hand into a pushing space and you push, you'll produce the action of rolling. Mm -hmm. If you come up to that object and you have the capacity to balance on one foot, you can lift your foot and have your foot be the pusher or kicker, Mm -hmm. right? So our hands can be pushers. Our hands can be pullers. Our hands can be pickuppers. Our feet can be pushers and tappers and kickers and lifters. Those are actions that our body can create. And those actions that our body creates, those are affordances. And those interact with the affordances that are out in space, in the environment. So if you have an object that's pickupable, like a peg or like a a bead, and it has a hole in it, if you want, if you give a big bead with a hole in it to kids and you don't give them something to fill that hole with, they're going to fill it, right? They're going to fill it by looking through <laughs> mm-hmm. it because they're going to interact with the affordance of the hole. Right. They're going to maybe blow through it. They're going to try and put they their tongue through it. They might find little things sure. to put into it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So if, if you give them a string and a bead, 
they might see that those two things can interact with each other. And if they have the capacity, fine motor wise, to put those two things together, they will. But if you give a bead and a string to a little baby who doesn't yet have the fine motor skill to do those things, they won't see it as an option uh, Mm -hmm. for their action because they don't, they can't embody the skill of putting it together. So they just won't, they'll play with the string, they'll play with the bead, but they won't necessarily put them together. Once they have the skill in them in their own self to put the bead, the thread through the bead, then that becomes an action that they can produce. And so it becomes a skill that's possible. And it's possible because the affordance draws it out of them. Hmm. Okay. So I've, I, my brain is, I think, been a little bit like blown because this is so cool. I'm just thinking about, um, so I have to have this, the capacity in my body to actually do the action. So like the little baby doesn't have the actual fine motor capacity to do put the thread through, right? But then mm-hmm. is there also like a – I'm just thinking at, at a developmental point, babies start to put things in things, right? So I'm just yeah. like how – is it because they're, like, I don't know, cognitive, postural, like all the development to that point mm. has then allowed them to go – oh, now this is something, so I can perceive that this is something that can fit inside that thing or I can take it out or do they have to sort of, yeah, like how does this sort of come together? it's a dance. Well, I'm putting it together as a dance between the two that they will either cognitively or sensory motor, motorically, um, something develops that allows them to hang on to something that's fine, like a bead. We'll continue with that yeah. example. Yeah. And then they have to have the cognitive ability to do something with it, that it might uh, just accidentally happen the first time and then they repeat it and they add on to it and do things in different ways. Cognitively, they file that. They have a memory of the repertoire that they can yeah. do with that. And then as they move on, to um, the next level of a development. So, for example, with a ball, they might catch it, roll it, kick it. And then when they get to 10, they might sit on it and balance it when their balance is fine-tuned enough. That as they go through the stages, they keep layering on. Is that right? In my head, I just thought, well, that's so complicated because then if you don't have like like, well, I'm just (laughs) thinking about Yeah, well, like if if you have these all these elements, so I have to have the capacity in my body and the cognition. So say if you've come into the world with poor cognition, then I'm just trying to also fit in the perception piece around this, right? So there's I have to perceive it. Then I have to have the capacity of my body and then I have to have the cognition. So like at any point, any of these pieces could be potentially undoing this whole process. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it's a dynamic system, right? So the, the cognition really results from the embodied experience. Mm. Cool. Okay. That was my question. And language results from the embodied experience. But Mm. once you embody the experience and you have the ability to say, oh, this is a thing that goes inside of a thing. Now you have that as a schema. So affordance Mm. action turns into schemas. And once you have some schemas, like, I'm a I'm capable of putting in or I'm capable of pushing or I'm capable of kicking then you forever get to own that like that's a part of you now like and riding that, a bike you can't unlearn riding a bike yeah unless right? something degrades yeah, or yeah, you right. fall off and bonk your head right so then you can lose the skill through degeneration or through injury or or through a degradation of memory yeah. um you know you can you can be a good tennis player And if you practice and practice and practice, you will always be a decent tennis player, but you won't maintain the expertise and high level of skill unless you keep practicing. So you can have a degrading of skill um, if you don't lose it. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Kind of that philosophy. But but the basic schemas, you don't really lose those. Um, They are episodic in nature. They kind of in your memory. And so... You know, if you, so there's, that's a complicated process to talk through. But what we're really thinking about here is how sensory discrimination is a part of the perceptual affordance Mm. dance that happens that builds the embodied cognitive language experience and Mm. capacity. Mm. So praxis is a capacity, language is a capacity, 
cognition is a capacity and all of them draw from this rich sensory discrimination perceptual fund that that gives you all the possibilities and what happens with affordances that are so interesting so if i give um you uh an object that you've never seen before you will explore it for its bits and parts Mm -hmm. and then you'll sort of turn it into something that creates some sort of meaningful repetitive quality Mm -hmm. and then that becomes that for you Mm -hmm. so if you've never seen you know a stretchy thing like a slinky before you would you would sort of notice that it squeezes together and stretches apart that you can really stretch it that if you put one part higher than another, maybe it flops around. So we give children toys like this that don't have really obvious, like, what is that? Mm. It's a, what is that toy? It's a non cause and effect. It's a. Yeah. It's an explore it, Mm. explore Mm. this. What, what is this? Mm. What could this be? And, and when you watch children play with those kinds of toys, you can start to get a sense of, what is their perceptual? What do they do with it? You know, do they just smash it really hard? Do they mm. pick it up and toss it? Do they act on it from an old schema? Mm. Or can they generalize and generate new schemas? Mm. Yeah, right. And then and then how does that look in terms of the smoothness and accuracy and timing? And so as you dance across that flow from perception into motor execution, you start to be able to discern where does the problem come from more likely? Is it more around that execution of motor function or is it more in, they just don't have any idea how to generate meaning out of this object. Mm. So children um, who line things up, for Mm. instance, right? They, they get that this thing and this thing and this thing, I'm going to put them next to each other and I'm going to create this perceptual set for myself but they don't really move beyond perception into, well, what are those things that you're lining up? Are they trucks or crayons or cars or dinosaurs or what are they? And can they be more meaningful than just the perceptual quality that they can be in a line? Mm-hmm. So a child who's doing that, you would really be able to work at that level of perceptual affordance different than if the kid was lining it up in order to make sure that they were all exactly even because they were working on the precision of space, Mm. that's really a different thing. And so it's really in observing what is it that they're doing and then using your clinical reasoning to think it through and to understand the process well enough to figure out where the issue lies. We don't have tests for this stuff. Mm. You know, we, we have tests for sensory discrimination. We have tests for playfulness. We have tests for motor accuracy. We have tests for motor execution. But we don't really have, and we, we do have the, the SIPT and the easy in the world of air sensory integration that help us get a sense of the process of praxis, but we don't have great tests for all these parts. So it really comes down to clinical observation and clinical reasoning and interpretation. Oh, wow, Trace. So now I wonder, can we talk about sensory discrimination right down into the sense? So at the receptor level, um, the pathway heading up to the cortex, I'm thinking about the tactile system. We won't go into detail of that. And then you've said the word perception. It's kind of... um, I wonder, can we unpack that a bit? So we've got the um, the neural pathway for the uh, sensory system. So obviously they're all different. Um, and then perception, I guess I've just, that's cognition, is it? Like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of the step between the pure sensory um, reception and yes. then you that the information is going to land in cortical areas. Yes, mm-hmm. um, various cortical And because areas it's cortical, yeah. on, on some level, somebody in the world may say, of course, it's cognition. But there are those steps that happen where 
um, the cognition sort of boils out of the embodiment of it and out of the integration. Cognition in and of itself kind of comes from perceptual embodiment and from experience and from putting the pieces in an integrated way together. So cognition is going to be the summation function that starts to be the representational holding tank of that mm-hmm. information. Um, and I, I'm laughing in my own head, so I'm going to share the reason that I'm laughing. <laughs> is that When I was in graduate school studying neuroscience, um, we had to like define the word representation in the brain like every single week in this particular class that I took and it was maddening so (laughs) and partly that's just because that link between sensation perception cognition is pretty controversial depending on who you read and it gets very detailed in terms of top-down and bottom-up processing and and all of the different theories of it but at a neuroscience level at a neuroscience neuroscience level, not an OT. Yeah. 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 More in a neuroscience and sort of psychological theory level. But for our purposes in looking at children, what we see is that they, they have to be able to get this sensory detail Mm -hmm. and to, to interact with those sensory details in a meaningful way Mm -hmm. in order for the skill to even be able to be a possibility. Mm-hmm. And what we see, we see that breakdown for children that have sensory integrative processing problems so that they um, aren't able to make use of that detail. Mm-hmm. Now, where the problem comes from is not well understood, whether it's at the level of the periphery, in the receptors themselves, in the surround processing facilitation that happens or if it's more in the level of integration up higher Mm. it's probably at multiple levels Mm. and different for different children Mm. so if we have kids that have known peripheral processing problems we know that that's where it's coming from but it isn't just living at the peripheral level Mm. because you'll see it in the more in the higher level processing Mm. and in the cognition so But what we really are interested in is when a child is trying to learn how to be an effective doer in the world, Mm. right? Mm. And they want to know how to kick or use their little hands to put coins in a bank or button their shirts or pick up a fork and get the food into their mouth or move the food from the front of their mouth to the side of their Mm. mouth so they can chew it or hear the difference between a P and a B or mm. a black bear. Is there a blah in the bear word? Like, is it Blair? Because mm. I said black, black Blair, or is it bear? So how do they discern how to create precision in their listening, in their speaking, in their doing? That's what we are really interested in. Mm-hmm. And when children struggle with this, it's often because either the sensory detail isn't meaningful enough to them, so we have to enhance that, yeah. or their nervous system is telling them the detail isn't important because you're working so hard to just keep yourself up against gravity that mm. we don't care about detail. It's right. secondary. So it's a second priority. other yep. issues, modulation problems, anxiety, postural problems Arousal. can make mm. sensory discrimination sort of irrelevant. Like, right. eh, I don't, I don't care about where the hole is because I'm going to fall down if I try to put the thread through the hole. And so All of what we look at when we're doing deep clinical reasoning is we try to figure out where do we start? Yeah. And and do we treat that postural problem first or the discrimination problem first? It's quite complex. (laughs) (laughs) I just um, I I'm at that point where I'm like, I have so many questions, but I can't actually figure out what my question is. Um, so maybe for the sake of people listening, we can come back to, cause I really am just like, Oh, this affordance thing. I feel like I need to pull this together. I don't feel like I've integrated it right for myself. So I'm certainly going to re-listen to this episode. Um, but I think we can revisit this concept as well, because I'm sure 
that once I re-listen, I'll have all these questions in mind. <laughs> um, and it probably will be helpful for all of us to just keep coming at it and just yeah. keep trying to put it together. But um, I guess in terms of – so if you're seeing issues present like lack of skillful precision or a not knowing – how that that's a thing that I can do with this object or um I I guess what's coming to mind for me is even a kid sitting on a swing and not being able to figure out how to use their body to make the swing move right and so um I've heard you talk about this before Tracy so in terms of the discriminative function of the vestibular system around once my body moves through space and gravity pulls differently at different points in the arc of the swing. So especially at the point where it changes, um, that it'll give a signal to the vestibular system, which should then discern what that is. And then you'll see the postural change. Yeah. Yeah. Shift at that point to know, okay, I'm now changing direction in space. And so now I'm going to shift my weight to make the swing go. And so, I mean, in treatment, when I don't see that, sometimes I just swing them really big so that the signal gets clearer, I'm assuming, um, and that then I actually see the adaptive function come online where the posture starts to shift. So, I mean, what is actually happening there? For, for everyone who's listening, and I just threw in a random example about the vestibular system, and we haven't even talked about that yet this episode. So what is actually going on when you're seeing that change and the shift in that example that I just gave. Yeah. So here's what, what you're describing is exactly how sensory discrimination leads to that sensory motor embodied response, adaptive response. And so that is where capacity grows out of. So much of our basic sensory motor experience grows out of that sensory discrimination signal. So in the vestibular system, um, there's this signal of, um, am I in more flexion or extension in my head and neck complex as my body moves through space? And if I'm getting a vestibular proprioceptive signal that I'm in a little more flexion, then I'm going to recruit the flexor surface. And then I'm going to counter that if I start to go too far by the opposite and engaging my extensors. And that's really what swinging is, right? You're mm-hmm. in that, that flow between flexion, extension, flexion, extension. So you're doing that in response to the sensory detail. And that discriminative sensory detail is helping organize your motoric response, your adaptive response in your postural motor system to become a swinger. And then you develop the schema of swinging, and now you're a swinger. (laughs) So you have this skill that grows out of sensory discrimination. So that story is going to repeat itself in every single sensory motor domain. Um, and, and so in the vestibular system, it's going to be related to the adaptive responses of that function. So like postural control or swingingness yep. um, or bilaterality or balance, those things all come out of the detail. And then in the somatosensory system in your little fingers, your touch receptors, mm. your discernment of the front or the back of your thumb the pressure that you can get in opposition, all of that comes, that detailed discrimination gives you the ability to be a prehensile person that can pinch things and pick things up and move things and do things um, where you squeeze a grape and squish all the juice out (laughs) of it or you carefully pick it up so that you don't squeeze the juice out of it. That precision is all guided by the sensory discrimination system. And it gives you that skillfulness. So in treatment, what we're looking at is really giving that beautiful enhancement that either fuels the sensory discrimination system with more juice, more information, more detail, more intensity, or more frequency, or more 
specificity that mm-hmm. gives you then the adaptive connection to, oh, if I feel my fingers, then I can be a careful great picker upper. <laughs> but if I can't feel my fingers, then I'm not going to really be very skillful at that great picking up or putting them onto a spoon or using my skillfulness. Yeah, it's yeah. all the same story. <laughs> it just goes across the different systems. Yeah. And that's where we can use the other systems to um, add emphasis to what we're doing so that um, – Eventually, things happen automatically that we can pick our, put a hand in our pocket and pick our coin. And I give no thought to that mm. ever. Like it just happens. Um, where at the very start, what I might need to do is look at it, that we might um, uh, help the child to notice all the different elements and sizes and shapes. So they're using their vision and we might talk them through it. So we narrate that so that they get that auditory input to help add the cognitive picture or perception of it so that we're layering or giving attention to the tactile Mm. system with details from other systems to emphasize that the salient information this is pay attention to this bit notice all of those things that will help refine in the end the tactile system functions yeah. yeah yeah And that eventually it's automated, that we don't need to look at it, that we don't need to hear it. I don't need Corey to remind me that our 50-cent coin is... Is it a hexagon? I think it's a 10-sided shape. (laughs) Isn't it? 12? Octo. I can't remember. Someone will correct us in the comments. (laughs) Um, That's right. So is that... I was was just thinking in that example, Michelle, though, even there, you're in that pulling them in and helping them tune in with your relationship with that child, you're also spotlighting the whole nervous system onto the function, right? So like we're enhancing the perception, but then you're also going, (laughs) ooey, don't you love that? Hey, here, pay attention. Like this is information, this is important and this is helpful. And then you use it in a skillful way, right? So in the activity that you're doing. Mm. Um, so it's like a combination of things because we're hitting at all the levels there. We're trying mm. to enhance the actual sensory information, but then we're also pulling in the cognition piece around, hey, this is useful pay for Pay attention, you. pay yeah. attention to that Yeah, detail. with the relationship and yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. So that affective spotlight Mm. and putting effort in and trying it again and doing it a little bit different, all of those are the qualities that bring it into real cognition, into into real skill. And so it takes our effect and our connection to the child and our kind of motivation with them and our attentional system together and we're working together and we're working in synchrony and we're working in joyfulness and we're working in mastery drive and we're really trying hard to get better at it and all of those different qualities are all a part of the treatment Mm -hmm. Um, but we're also basing it in sensory discrimination for the purpose of that higher level adaptive response. And that's the formula that comes together in play so beautifully and is enhanced. Um, And if you don't know to enhance the sensation, then you can play, but you're going to miss the beat of where does the brain, where's that information that the brain needs to actually do this with more fluidity, automaticity, more ease, more um, skillfulness. And so it's really understanding the whole process in the treatment planning that is rich and exciting and fun and um, and part of, of why we were having this conversation mm. in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And it keeps us them relied on somebody else. Like if we don't help facilitate them to do it for themselves – then they'll need a carer or a friend or somebody to say, hey, tune in here or, or notice that. So it isn't allowing them to be independent, move to, yeah, move move towards, towards independence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. wow. <laughs> wow, so much information. It's been so good. Um, key takeaways, I guess, key points yeah. from this episode. Um, for me, I think my key my straight, straight away my first thought was 
okay, I need to re-listen to this episode and this is really complicated and it's exciting. (laughs) Um, What about you, Tracy? Well, you probably have said this in another episode, but Dr. Ayers got it right yet again. Here she is. um, You know, sensory discrimination as the base of skillfulness and as the base of praxis there's such richness there and there's such a truth to that it rings true still today in the neurosciences even all these 50 years later and that's critically important for us to be able to trust that this that's one of the reasons why this treatment is also efficacious and why we know it's an evidence-based practice so i just think that her brilliance really really is very shiny in terms of sensory (laughs) discrimination Mm. wow absolutely gosh my mind has blown i will certainly be listening to this again and coming at this idea of (laughs) affordances and perception again against um the orchestra of the brain i guess um the thing that stuck out for me is that only when my body uh, perceives itself to be safe and in in my body or in relationship with you that I can worry about the detail um, so that I have to tend to first things first before we can really get um, a child interested in detailing, finessing, um, yeah, fine tuning. <laughs> fine tuning. This is fine tuning, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It and leads into safety, but um, yeah. It does. And, you know, I kind of want to say something that we didn't say, but it's too juicy to not say it right now. <laughs> And that is that on the other side of this coin, if your body can't feel detail, it's really hard to feel safe. And so sometimes the first step is, what is the container that I'm in and am I safe and can I feel it and do I know that? And so it kind of leads us to how sensory discrimination and sensory modulation Mm. are going to be partners, but Mm. they're different from each other. And that kind of came comes full circle to how we started, Corey. How do we, you know, understand the complexity of this? Yeah. So what a fun thing to be able to talk about it with you guys today. And maybe next time we'll jump into talking about sensory modulation. Yeah. I think you just segued us right there, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thanks, guys. Wonderful. We'll get to talk to you soon. See you. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Seed Paediatric Services and Developmental FX, produced by Little Image Co. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com, or catch us at our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us today for this episode. Take care and we'll see you next time.